Today from the Global Lane, tough talk on China with American allies. But does Washington possess the political will to stand up to Beijing? Beijing is pushing, 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 and everybody else is really at a loss to what to do. Israel elects a new government. Biden poised to bring back Obama's big brother approach. Why don't you let things be done the American way? California public school students soon to be chanting to Aztec gods? Including the Aztec god to which most of their human sacrifices were made. Biden proposes a tax increase. Why we're all in it together. The truth is, they want to put their hand in your wallet. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. First came the so-called Quad Talks, the U.S. and three allies, India, Japan, and Australia, pledging to counter aggressive actions from China. Then the two-plus-two talks with the American secretaries of defense and state, along with their Japanese and South Korean counterparts. Those consultations came just days before the Biden administration's first meeting with top Chinese officials in Alaska. Here to explain what the Biden administration may accomplish and what this means for you and me is China analyst Gordon Chang. Mr. Chang is author of the book, The Coming Collapse of China, also The Great U.S.-China Tech War. Gordon, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. So how do you expect the Biden administration will respond? Because it's doubtful China's behavior will change. Well, certainly China's behavior is not going to change in the absence of significant pushback from the United States and friends and partners. And we have seen this in recent weeks because the Chinese leaders and others are talking about annexing Taiwan within a five-year time frame. Some people say six, um, but clearly that would be a move that would broil not just the region, but the world. And I think the Biden team will think that it has a China policy, but like previous administrations, it will really just be reacting to the maliciousness that uh, is evident in Beijing. Beijing is pushing, 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 and everybody else is really at a loss to what to do and are really just trying defensive maneuvers. Well, it may have a lot to do with Will as well, Gordon. Talking with uh, Maria Bartiromo on Fox News recently, investigative journalist author Peter Schweizer said part of China's strategy is to co-opt the U.S. congressional leadership by using sexual honey traps, also sweetheart commercial deals to enrich congressional families. Listen to what Schweizer had to say. This is a massive problem. We can challenge and we can stay ahead of China. Uh, we can even work to, to potentially reform China, but it's going to take leadership and tough decisions. And there are a lot of people in Washington who don't want to make those tough decisions because they're making a lot of money uh, by being cozy with Beijing. Weiser uh, mentioned Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, who secured deals in Beijing. He says Dianne Feinstein's husband, Richard Bloom, did deals with China. He also mentions a family of Senate Minority Leader McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, and their shipping company construction deals with China. Of course, Schweizer, as you know, has written extensively about Biden family business dealings with the Chinese. So how concerned should we be about that and perhaps an unwillingness on Capitol Hill, even the White House, to aggressively counter the China threat. We should be extremely concerned because it's not just those individuals, it's others. And China uses all points of contact with the United States to undermine our society. Sometimes it uses money, sometimes it uses other things, but really its purpose is malign. And, and that means we need to start cutting our contacts with China until we understand and can manage it. Because the FBI is overwhelmed, 
local law enforcement is overwhelmed. The U.S. government is overwhelmed. And until we know that we can protect ourselves, we have got to, unfortunately, start cutting those relationships. And, of course, the fallout from those relationships, now Hong Kong. At the recent meeting of the National People's Congress, the Chinese Communist Party voted to tighten its grip by choosing a greater share of candidates in Hong Kong elections. So, Gordon, does this mean Hong Kong democracy is dead or on life support? Well, it certainly is dead because uh, China would take the Legislative Council, increase the number of seats from 70 to 90, and it would be appointing those additional 20 seats. Um, same dynamic for the election committee, um, big increase there of 300 people off of 1,200. So really what's going on here is Beijing deciding that it is going to choose who sits in these legislative bodies. And, and that means there's really no democracy left. Really what's going to have to happen are the people of Hong Kong are going to have to take to the streets again and push their government out of the way. And by the way, they do need help from the Biden administration. They need help from Britain. Um, they need help from everybody else at this point. And it's in our interest to supply it. Seems like it was a big mistake handing it over to China back in 1997 when Britain did that. What do you think? Well, certainly, because China never honors its promises. It promised a 50 years of high degree of autonomy under the one country, two systems formula. That was the 1984 joint declaration. And China has just abrogated it. So. Britain now says it's not in, China's not in compliance. We've known that for quite some time. Um, but what we got to see are countries actually doing something about this. And we have an interest, because if Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, believes that he can get away with what he's doing in Hong Kong without cost, he's going to be moving on everybody else. So that's why it's important for us to make him pay that cost, make it sure that he doesn't feel secure in Hong Kong, because that way we have at least a chance of defending not only our friends and allies, but also ourselves. And finally, Gordon, China's economy appears to be bouncing back following 2020 setbacks because of the Wuhan virus. Production's up. The economy's forecast to grow about 7.8 percent this year. You wrote the book, The Coming Collapse of China. So that doesn't sound like collapse to me, or is this more a Chinese Communist Party deception? Well, at the moment, the Chinese Communist Party is not collapsing. Um, but um, clearly, the Chinese economy is not growing as fast, if it's growing at all. Um, they claimed 2.3 percent GDP growth last year. That's, I think, a mirage. And ultimately, China's not going to recover until it has safe and effective vaccines. It doesn't. We've got three of them, which means that we're going to have very robust growth this year and following years. And China, although it had a head start in developing vaccines, really is very far behind in this. So there's a good story here. Okay, Gordon Chang. People can follow you on Twitter. Your handle is Gordon G. Chang. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to share your time and insights. Oh, well, thank you so much, Gary. A new government in Israel, the fourth one in two years. What would it mean for the Middle East and the United States if another conservative government takes the majority there? And how would Joe Biden respond? We already have a few clues about a shift in U.S.-Israel policy. Well, joining us to provide some insights is Greg Roman. Mr. Roman is director of the Middle East Forum. Greg, it's good to see you again. So regardless of which party forms a government in Israel, it looks like the Biden administration policy toward Israel is already becoming Obama redux. Please explain what do you see happening. 
Sure. So there was three stages of the Obama administration's policy towards Israel that you can already see replicated in their first 50 some days of the Biden administration. First, it was the US uh, what, uh, adopting what I call the big brother approach. Israel, you're wronging the Palestinians. The actions you've taken under the former administration, in this case, Trump, in Obama's case, it was Bush, is not consequential or advantageous to Middle East peace. Why don't you let things be done the American way? And Biden has done this. He's already told the Israelis that they have to reallow the financing of the Palestinians. They have to be able to allow international organizations to provide cover for Palestinian incitement. And they've already gone so far as to freeze some of the major advantages that Israel's new allies, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Morocco, and other Sunni Arab countries obtained as a result of the uh, uh, as a result of the Abraham Accords. The next step is then distance. But instead of having the Israelis rewarded because they try to cooperate with the administration, the Israelis are pushed away. And in this case, who knows what Biden will do, but it will consequentially be negative towards Israel. Greg, why do you think a closer relationship with the Palestinian Authority may be the wrong course of action at this point? Well, right now, we have a repeat of what happened in 2006. The Palestinians have announced their intentions to have some sort of election. This is like the 10th time that they've announced it in the last 15 years. So we don't even know if it'll come to fruition. But for the totality of the time that the last administration stopped engaging with the Palestinians, they had to start complying and facing the reality that on their own, they're having a net negative towards their ability to provide services towards the Palestinians that they're ostensibly supposed to serve and stopped with a lot of their incitement that they had been putting forth. Now, when the American administration under President Joe Biden gets in office in January and says, we're gonna pay you for all of the uh, fines in which you had to be able to suffer beforehand under the Taylor Force Act. We're going to reallow the UNRWA, the United Nations Release and Works Administration, which provides uh, countless amounts of money towards ostensibly Palestine refugees, which actually, according to the definition under international conventions, are not refugees. And last, there's no more punitive or accountability that is asked by the United States of those who receive money from it. It's a blank check for incitement, for violence, and for corrupt behavior, which will go even forward. And if there is a Palestinian election, it's very likely that Hamas will carry the day and that it'll effectively be the United States underwriting a terror administration rather than a, and I'm not saying it's, it's any better off, but a terror-ran administration rather than just a kleptocratic one like we have right now under Mahmoud Abbas. The Trump administration worked tirelessly to bring about peace between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors, the Abraham Accords. That was a huge achievement in the Middle East, yet the former president isn't given much credit for that. So what do you see happening with the Accords? Will they stick? Might others join in? I think that one of the lessons that the Arab countries that have engaged with Israel and now exist in a post-Trump Middle East are realizing that the benefits they get from it are greater than any potential negative that may come out as a result of it. So this is one of the legacies of Donald Trump that will survive a Biden administration. However, some of the countries which were reluctant to engage with Israel, for instance, Saudi Arabia, maybe Kuwait, even some other North African countries which were on the precipice of engaging with their own treaties, I think will find themselves 
maybe going back a little bit because Biden is offering a cold shoulder to that idea. Of course, the big challenge is Iran. We've seen the Biden administration retaliate for rocket attacks against our troops in northern Iraq. What do you see happening there? More aggression from Iran against the U.S., escalating tensions, or a new nuclear deal with Biden? I think that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, with his opening hand in terms of trying to reenter the Iranian nuclear negotiations, Blinken's words and the actions of the administration, especially that of the Treasury Department, don't go along with one another. We just had a few days ago $3 billion being released by the U.S. In, in some of its facets with a sanctions waiver to the Iranian government. And now we have $6 billion, which is being considered by the South Korean government to be released to Iran again. Now, it may not be the United States giving these concessions directly, but America's allies or acting as America's surrogates may do that as sort of an indirect offer to Iran to reapproach the table. But I'll tell you this, if Iran keeps up malevolent, malign, and violent behavior towards America's forces directly in the Middle East, like with what happened in northern Iraq through its surrogates and its Shia militias that it sponsors, or tries to continue and up the action in Yemen and other places where they have different surrogate forces, Biden will be forced to respond. If he won't, he'll be seen as a weak American president. Okay, Greg Roman of the Middle East Forum, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Freeing colleges from sexual violence by eliminating due process for the accused. That's a potential effect of a new Joe Biden order reviewing the Title IX rule on campus sexual assault. Last spring, former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos mandated due process in the law, granting those accused of sexual assault and harassment the right to a live hearing including the right to question accusers. Now it appears the Biden administration is preparing to reverse that rule. Well, here to set us straight is campus reform fellow Angela Morabito. Ms. Morabito is former press secretary at the U.S. Department of Education under Betsy DeVos. Angela, it's good to have you with us to discuss this. So you were there at the Department of Education last May when this new policy was put into place. So why did Secretary DeVos believe there was a need for this new rule on sexual assault on campus? Well, Gary, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to be with you. And, and Secretary DeVos saw early on in her time as secretary that the current Title IX system just was not working for students. The past administration had set up a Dear Colleague letter that essentially scared schools into totally violating due process in stating these kangaroo courts. Uh, and more than 170 students sued their schools and won because their Title IX rights to due process had been violated. Well, let's discuss this for a moment. Those opposed to the policy said... Uh, the change that uh, Secretary DeVos made said it would deter victims from coming forward. It would allow sexual assault perpetrators and colleges and universities to escape responsibility. So aren't those valid concerns? Your thoughts? Those concerns would be valid, I mean, if they had any basis in the truth. But if you actually look at what's in the DeVos rule, it expands protections for survivors. Uh, for instance, for the first time ever, schools are required to deliver supportive services to survivors if survivors want them. Uh, that could be anything from a new dorm assignment to a change in class schedule. And that's even if the survivor chooses not to pursue the complaint process any further. Uh, this rule also prohibits students from cross-examining one another. So if, if 
a survivor does not want to be in the same room as the accused student, they have that right. They never have to come face to face with the accused. Well, that's a good thing. Shifting gears here a little bit, the California Department of Education is considering an ethnic studies curriculum based on the ideas of a Brazilian Marxist educator who advanced the idea that whites are racist and Christian settlers committed genocide against indigenous Americans. Now, teachers are encouraged to lead students in chants to an Aztec god as an act of, quote, transformational resistance. So what would this mean for California's six million public school students? It's just so sad. This is going to be absolutely devastating to these kids. I looked through the curriculum that's being considered for California's ethnic studies. And sure enough, just as you mentioned, they have kids chanting to Aztec gods, including the Aztec god to which most of their human sacrifices were made. This has no place in the classroom. It's one thing to learn about other cultures. That's great. I'm all for it. It's another thing to be forced as a child to embrace other cultures and quite literally other gods as your own. They've totally crossed a line and California needs to correct its course right away. It makes you wonder whatever happened to teaching students uh, preparing them for the workforce and for life. Uh, but chanting to an Aztec god? Anti-Christian bias, Aztec chanting, Marxist ideology, dividing Americans by race, and banning Dr. Seuss books. Where is all this cancel culture leading in education, and what needs to be done to reverse the trend, Angela? I think it's so important to remember that cancel culture was born on college campuses. The Leadership Institute's campus reform has reported on countless instances where a student or even a member of the faculty says something that is considered offensive. It might not be offensive to all, but someone takes umbrage with it. And if that someone gets loud enough, that person's career is effectively over. We're seeing this now bleed into the workforce, bleed into public policy and, in, and into the markets, even, even into bookstores, like you mentioned with Dr. Seuss. And cancel culture always demands more, right? Like we're asking, where is the limit? And cancel culture doesn't have one. Their standard for Americans is becoming people who have never made a misstep in the public eye. So in the future, when we're all canceled, the only American hero will be Dolly Parton. And I like Dolly Parton as much as the next girl, but perfection can't be the standard. Okay. Angela Morabito, Campus Reform Fellow, thanks so much for setting us straight today. Thank you, Gary. You may want to hold on to your stimulus check. Just as millions of Americans begin to receive stimulus money in their bank accounts and mailboxes, comes word that Joe Biden wants to raise taxes. I guess something has to be done to pay for this out-of-control spending in Washington. But raising taxes, even on wealthier Americans, is not the answer. Especially as our country starts digging out from lockdowns imposed mostly by blue state governors. If Biden moves forward, it would be the first major tax increase since 1993. At this point, it would mostly affect Americans earning more than $400,000 per year. That's about 2.5 million taxpayers. Also, the president reportedly wants to raise the corporate rate from 21% to 28% and increase capital gains taxes for people earning more than $1 million a year. But what Biden and others fail to realize is that when you raise taxes on some of us, it has an impact on all of us. Remember, they tell us we're in this together.
With less in their bank accounts, those making more than $400,000 are less likely to buy new cars, new homes, or invest more money in their businesses. Corporations are less likely to add jobs or expand their factories. They may even return to China or Mexico. All of that affects jobs, sales and commerce, even tax revenues. Actually, the best way to grow our economy coming out of the pandemic is to do nothing. Keep taxes low, because that's how we bring about economic success. I had the privilege of reporting on President Ronald Reagan in Washington back in the 1980s. Despite what Donald Trump may say, Reagan signed the biggest tax cut in the nation's history, a 25% reduction for all taxpayers. That helped create 35 million jobs. Federal revenues actually doubled during the 10-year period, 1980 to 1990. And the country experienced the longest period of peacetime, sustained growth in U.S. history. And Donald Trump, his tax cuts and Jobs Act actually reduced the tax rate for all income groups in 2018. And his reductions in corporate taxes and regulations helped bring about the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years and the lowest rates ever for minorities. The stock market set record highs repeatedly. Those in the Biden administration and on Capitol Hill who want to increase taxes say it would raise more than $3 trillion in 10 years, much needed revenue to help fund infrastructure and jobs projects. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich told Fox's Sean Hannity it's really about funding Democrat interest groups. They've got to get the money from somewhere. They're going to borrow as much as they can. And then they're going to come after every hardworking American, every American business, large and small. They're going to use really nice sounding rhetoric. But the truth is they want to put their hand in your wallet to take out your money to give to their allies. And so that's it, the number one reality of this machine. Folks, Republicans say they'll fight hard against this one, but without Democrats supporting them in the House and Senate in that effort, this too will be railroaded through and signed into law. Tax and spend Democrats are likely to live up to their reputations, and the nation, all of us may suffer the consequences. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, MeWe, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.